Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, I want to ask you to open it with me tonight to two places. Leviticus chapter 10, Leviticus chapter 10, and then 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Leviticus 10 and 1 Chronicles 13. And in just a minute, we'll read a few verses in each of those chapters. Tonight, as we continue on in our study on the holiness of God, we're going to look at the topic of holy justice. Holy justice. Uh, Like some of you, or perhaps many of you, those of you who are here tonight, and and no doubt many of you who are watching us at home as well, uh, I was a Sunday school kid growing up in church. What I mean by that is that each Sunday prior to our corporate worship worship time, I was there in my primary class learning from faithful teachers the stories of Scripture. And you know and can recall the ones that I'm talking about, the story of creation, how God brought about this world in uh, seven days there in Genesis 1 and 2, the story of Noah and the ark there in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, The Exodus account in the book of Exodus, how God uh, delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt and Pharaoh. Uh, The story of David and Goliath, how with just a a stone and a sling, this young shepherd brought down this uh, great nemesis to the armies of the living God. The story of the three Hebrew young men who were delivered out of the fiery furnace of King Nebuchadnezzar and, of course, Daniel, uh, who spent the night in the lion's den. And then there's Jonah and the well, what, uh, what Sunday school class didn't teach that story. And so you know what I'm talking about, all of these familiar stories uh, that we were taught in Sunday school, stories from Scripture. But we need to remember tonight that these aren't the only stories told in Scripture. These were just the ones we were told about, and these stories don't tell us the whole story. There are other scriptural accounts recorded. And as we come to these stories, many times when we're older, we read them and we struggle to grasp the God that they present to us because it seems contradictory to the God we think we know or the one that we were taught about in our Sunday school classes when we were young. These are those passages, these difficult ones that teach us and touch on holy justice. Holy justice. And that's what I want us to think about tonight as we continue in our study of the holiness of God. And these two passages that we're going to look at are two such stories from Scripture. We probably weren't taught these stories in Sunday school. These were the ones that remained tucked away uh, in our Bibles. But yet when we come to them, they puzzle us, they strike us as out of place because they teach us about holy justice. So if you have your Bibles open, we'll read Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3 first, and then we'll go to 1 Chronicles 13, verses 7 through 11. So Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Follow along and 
and I'll read and hear the word of God tonight. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, or I will show myself holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. What a shocking story in Scripture. That in an instant, God strikes down these two sons of Aaron. Let's look at 1 Chronicles 13 now. 1 Chronicles 13. Verses 7 through 11. 1 Chronicles 13, 7 through 11. To set the context of this chapter, David has sought to unify the nation of Israel once he ascended to the throne. And it's his desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the central piece of furniture that resided in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, uh, back to the nation. And uh, he has called for its return. And here in First Chronicles 13, starting in verse 7, we have uh, the account of that return. Verse 7 says, And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah, and Ohio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of, of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Again, another story of Scripture which we probably weren't taught in our young days in Sunday school. It's a story that once again highlights for us the holy justice of God. That here is a man in the midst of a parade. This was no small audience. This was all Israel gathering to celebrate the return of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God would sit in the presence of his people. And here is this most holy piece of furniture is being brought back to the nation of Israel. The oxen carrying it on the cart stumble, and Uzzah, presumably out of reflex, reaches up to keep it from falling off the cart. And in an instant, God kills him. Kills him. Kills him. Pardon? The ark, was it falling? Yeah, that's presumably why he was, he was reaching out to catch it, to keep it from, 
from falling as the oxen were stumbling there. What do we do with these passages? What do we do with a God who sends out fire from the altar and strikes down two priests who are serving there before him? What do we do with a God in 1 Chronicles 13 who slays a man for doing what we presume to be a good act? Holy justice. R.C. Sproul says, if we fix our minds on the holiness of God, the result might be disturbing. If we fix our minds on the holiness of God, the result might be disturbing. And I believe he's absolutely correct. Sproul goes on to give an example of this reasoning. He points us to the life of the reformer Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., but the original Martin Luther in the 1500s, the one who would nail his theses to the castle door there at Wittenberg and would be the firebrand of the Reformation and recovery of the gospel. Luther was certainly used mightily by God, but he was also troubled deeply by God. He even said, these are the words of Luther, love God? Sometimes I hate him. He would go on and say, sometimes Christ seems to be nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. These are some shocking words. Some shocking words from a man that we hold in such high regard in the history of the church. Some of those statements given by Luther are explained simply by his personality. He was overly bombastic and prone to outrageous statements. For example, consider the words that he would write to his counterpart in the Reformation, a man by the name of Erasmus who took the side of the Catholic Church as he and Luther would uh, square off in writings that they were producing. Erasmus penned a diatribe against Luther's teaching of justification by faith. And as Luther read the words of Erasmus, this is how he responded. He wrote, It seemed a complete waste of time to reply to your arguments. I have already myself refuted them over and over again. And Philip Melanchthon, who was an associate of Luther, who worked alongside of him, he said, And Melanchthon, in his unsurpassed volume on the doctrines of theology, has trampled your arguments in the dust. That book of his, to my mind, deserves not merely to live as long as books are read, but to take place in the church's canon. Whereas your book, by comparison struck me as so worthless and poor that my heart went out to you for having defiled your lovely, brilliant flow of language with such vile stuff. I thought it outrageous to convey material of so low a quality and the trappings of such rare eloquence. It is like using gold or silver dishes to carry garden rubbish or dung. That's how Luther spoke. That's how Luther wrote. That's how he responded to those who saw the gospel differently. What's his personality? So some of the words that Luther said in love God, sometimes I hate him, that's simply his personality on display, but not all personality. Because there's also profound truth contained in those words of Luther. You see, Luther had fixed his mind on the holiness of God, and it shook him to his core. He was disturbed by it. He knew that God was holy, and so was his justice. 
many share Luther's thoughts, even if they don't verbalize them as he did. Many don't like the God that all of Scripture gives to us, a God of holy justice. This is the God who calls for the slaughter of entire people groups and wipes out entire cities. Or for that matter, a God who destroyed all flesh from the face of the earth in a flood. That's a far, far cry from how that story is often taught in our Sunday school classrooms. And it's always amazed me that we see in some instances, and hopefully this is not you tonight, and if it is, I I seek not to be like Luther and offend you, but we decorate nurseries with depictions of Noah's Ark. The story of the flood account is first and foremost a story of God's judgment upon the earth. It was not a cute little parade of animals lining up side by side to take an enjoyable boat ride. No, this was God unleashing his wrath because the intentions of man's heart were continually evil before him. Save Noah and his family, every other human being on the face of the earth was wiped out in that flood. But we've softened that. We simply, and thankfully so, just want to look at the rainbow at the end of the story. And I'm thankful that the rainbow is there. I'm thankful uh, for the grace of God and the blessings of God. But let us not forget that he is a God of holy justice as well. And these texts tonight that we are looking at are perfect examples of encountering the holy justice of God. And considering our recoil and shuddering at it. In these texts, Sproul says, we stare God right in the eye. And in doing so, we stare into the abyss of the capital, most capital, terrible. The most terrible. I want to walk back through these two texts with you tonight and just share with you a few thoughts about each passage and then give you some concluding thoughts on this topic of the holy justice of God. So let's look first at Leviticus 10 again. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, the story of the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. It's shocking to us, or at least it should shock us, that here are two priests in the service of God, in the tabernacle of God, and God strikes them dead in an instant. There's no leeway given. Reminds you that these are sons from the family of Moses and Aaron, the two leaders that God used to bring uh, his, his people out of bondage in Egypt. They were intermediaries, if you will, between God and the people. And, and this is their own flesh and blood. No doubt they had heard the accounts. No doubt they had, had been told the stories. And now here they are in an act of service, and they defile the altar of God. They present unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord. They disobeyed the command of God. But this was just one act, one occasion, just one instance. And yet God struck them dead, swift and violent judgment. We know that was presumably the case because 
after we're told of what transpired there with the Lord striking these two boys dead, Moses responds to Aaron. This is what the Lord, he said. Presumably Aaron had gone to Moses. Why would God do this to my sons? Why would God do this to your nephews? This was just one occasion, and we don't understand entirely what they did, but we do know that they transgress a command that God gave them. The response that Moses gave from the Lord to Aaron was simply, I will show myself holy. Among those who are near me, I will show myself holy. Before all the people, I will be glorified. Here, God was showing himself holy. God was showing his character on display. He was showing that his holiness demanded justice when his holiness was called into question. And that's exactly what Nadab and Abihu were guilty of doing. They were operating in such a way as the Lord had not commanded them. The command was given in Exodus 30, verses 9 through 10, that that altar there where they were serving was the most holy altar. It was set apart of everything else that was set apart, and now here they were transgressing it, maligning the character of the God which it represented. And in that moment, God struck them dead. The end of verse 3 tells us that Aaron remained silent. He heard the response from his brother that the Lord had given, I will show myself holy. And that's what was on display here, the holiness of God and his justice being meted out. What more could Aaron say? What response could he give? He held his peace. It does us no good to push back against the God of Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. It does us no good to argue against his actions that he undertook here in defending his holiness and showing himself holy and ensuring that he will be glorified before all the people. We do well to learn from Aaron and simply hold our peace. But what do we do with 1 Chronicles 13? The story of Uzzah. Maybe it was that Nadab and Abihu had concocted that, that they would contrive a way of altering fire on the altar of the Lord of their own doing. It wasn't a simple mistake, but yet a premeditated act on their part to bring this unholy fire before the Lord. Maybe that was the, the, the case. But in 1 Chronicles 13, as the ark of the God, the ark of the covenant is coming back to the, the people of God. Uzzah is seemingly just doing a good thing. This most sacred piece of furniture is soon to fall to the ground as the oxen stumble. And he just reaches out. This is an even more puzzling act on God's part. What Uzzah did was not deliberate, but reflexive, and presumably coming out of a heart filled with good intentions. Perhaps he should be a hero but not a villain at all. What we see in 1 Chronicles 13 is completely the opposite. God offers no thanks to him for saving the ark 
this most sacred piece of furniture. There's no accolades. There's no lifting up of us. Instead, God strikes him dead instantly. What do we do with this? Well, we've got to understand that like Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah was also guilty. It's not here in 1 Chronicles 13, but it's in Numbers 4, where God assigns to a particular group of people among the nation of Israel, a particular branch within the Levites, the Kohathites, the responsibility of carrying the articles that would be found within the tabernacle, all the pieces of furniture. They bore the responsibility of transporting those items. And presumably, Uzzah was among that group. He was a Kohathite. And so he knew his responsibility. It's why he was there with the Ark of the Covenant coming back to the, the people of God there in Israel. And in the explicit instruction that God gave the Kohathites, they were not to touch the articles or even look at them unless they die. Now, how was that supposed to transpire? Well, prior to the tabernacle being taken up and relocated, the Levites, the priests, had the responsibility of going in and covering all the pieces of furniture. The brazen altar, the laver, table of showbread, uh, the lampstand, all of these pieces of furniture, they were covered over by the priests. And then the Kohathites could come in and bear them up, but they could not touch the, the set apart, the consecrated, the holy pieces of furniture within the tabernacle. They had to first be covered. They couldn't look on them, couldn't touch them. The Ark of the Covenant was unique in that rings had been placed in its construction. And through those rings, staves or, or sticks would be placed through in which they could bear it up upon their shoulders to carry it. And God gave explicit instruction. This is how this is to be transported. You don't touch it. You don't look at it. You do it this way because I'm a holy God. And here we come to 1 Chronicles 13. And what we see is that the Ark of the Covenant is not being carried by the staffs or the rings, but instead it's placed upon an ox-drawn cart. And then Uzzah, knowing well what the Lord had said, knowing that, that as one who was assigned to to care for these pieces of furniture, he must do so appropriately, and the, the command had been given. Don't touch it, or you die. And in that moment, Uzzah and all of Israel realized the reality of that word from the Lord. The author of the text tells us in verse 11 that after this transpired, David was angry. You ever felt that way with the Lord? You ever felt like something's happened in your life to you or to someone that you love that, that seems as an injustice, that seems that God has done you wrong? You ever been like David and been angry? Well, what David failed to remember at that, that moment and what we fail to remember many times when we consider this text is that Uzzah was not an innocent man. He was not punished without a warning. There was nothing arbitrary or whimsical in what God did in that moment. It was holy justice on display. So these executions of God's justice, they take us by surprise. Their suddenness and the shock 
at which God acts, it often offends us. But why is that? Why is that? I think there's three things tonight we need to consider for a moment as we think about God's holy justice. And if we'll understand these three thoughts, that'll help us understand God's actions in the text before us tonight. First of all, three things to comprehend in relation to God's holy injustice. The seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. We do not understand what sin is. We simply want to classify it as a mistake, as a misstep, as an error in judgment. In our culture today, we've even renamed sin to make it more tolerable and less offensive. We, we see this failure to understand the seriousness of sin and, and even how we interact with our, our neighbors. What do we say when we've done wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. But we never say, please forgive me. There's a difference in what is communicated in those two statements, isn't there? Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. The idea of seeking forgiveness is, is much deeper, much more profound. It gets at the heart of what has transpired. But so often today, we don't feel that we need to seek that because we don't understand sin. God in his holiness, however, sees sin entirely different than we do. God in his holiness sees sin as an affront to what he is, to who he is. Therefore, us as act as sinful disobedience before the commands of a holy God was not an act of holy heroism, but one of arrogance and presumption. You see, Uzzah and his thinking assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth to which the Ark of the Covenant would fall and how wrong he was. Because in that moment, as that piece of furniture was tumbling, it still represented the, the, the place where God's glory would dwell with his people that was representative of God to them. And in that moment, the hand of a sinful man reached out to a holy God. And it didn't end well. Uzzah had been better off to simply let that ark fall to the earth below, for that earth was nowhere near polluted as he was. Mankind has disobeyed its creator. Think about that. We, we have disobeyed the one who has created us, not creation itself, not nature itself. Sproul, in perhaps some of the most powerful paragraphs of his book, The Holiness of God, says, listen to his words, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against the perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. 
We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you commanded me to do. The slightest sin, he says, is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act, in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. Here it is. It is an insult to his holiness. When we understand what sin is, we'll understand the actions of God in these texts tonight. Sin, and a proper understanding of it, helps us realize why sinners are worthy of eternal punishment. Have you ever considered why a person will be held accountable for a finite number of sins that they have committed for all eternity? The answer to that question is because they have sinned against an infinite God whose holiness is infinite and eternal. But yet we see sin as such a small and minute matter. But yet when we understand the seriousness of sin, we realize that we cannot claim injustice by God. No one can. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To understand holy justice, we must understand the seriousness of sin. But secondly... To understand holy justice, we must also consider the goodness of grace. The goodness of grace. One theologian has written, The most mysterious aspect of the mystery of sin is not that the sinner deserves to die, but rather that the sinner in the average situation continues to exist. Did you get that? The mysterious aspect of sin is not that the sinner deserves to die. That's what we just talked about. The seriousness of sin helps us to understand there is no injustice by God in condemning us to death and condemning us to eternal punishment because of our sin, because we've sinned against him, our creator, our holy creator. That's no mystery that the sinner deserves to die, but rather... The mystery is that the sinner in the average situation continues to exist. It's only by the grace of God that we sit here tonight. It's only by the grace of God that we will open our eyes and draw breath into our lungs tomorrow. We must understand that justice delayed is not justice denied, but rather an opportunity for God to establish his mercy and grace. You remember Adam and Eve? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, things are going really good. Genesis 3, uh-oh. In Genesis 3, they disobeyed the explicit command that God gave of them not to eat of that particular tree that he had placed in the Garden of Eden. And he told them the consequences if they should. For the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. In Genesis 3, we discover that they disobeyed that command, that they exalted themselves into the, the place of God, that the desire to become like God was more compelling to them than to worship God. In Genesis 3, God comes to judge 
Adam and Eve. And in one regard, what transpired that day was death. For in that moment, spiritually, they were separated from God. Spiritual death was incurred. But simultaneously, God continued to let them live. The day that you eat of this, you will surely die. But yet death did not come that day. In fact, for Adam, it wouldn't come for more than 900 years almost. But justice delayed was not justice denied, for death did come knocking on their door. But in that occasion, in that time until which it did, it was an opportunity for God to establish mercy and grace. And surely he did. In Genesis 15, if you're with us in our F260 Bible reading plan, you just read this chapter. It was the promise of God to to give to Abraham a land that he would go and possess. But it was a land that was currently dwelled in by people known as the Amorites. And there in Genesis 15, 16, God told, told Abraham, it'll be 400 years before you get there, but it's going to be years, and it's going to be years at that time because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They hadn't reached the tipping point yet with God. Oh, we need to remind ourselves that, broadly speaking, the Old Testament is a record of a God who is patient to the extreme. We, we see the conquest of Canaan. We see the slaughter of peoples and the, the overthrowing of cities. And we think, man, what, what kind of God is this? He's a God who is patient. That's who he is. He gave them 400 years. What amazes us so often is not the grace of God, but the justice of God. It startles us that a God would strike down two priests For one instance, at an altar, it startles us that God would strike dead, presumably a good friend of the king who was simply doing a good act in our eyes. It startles us. We're amazed at that kind of justice, and instead, we no longer marvel at grace. Let me remind us tonight that God owes us nothing but justice. God owes us absolutely nothing but justice, but yet he continually gives us grace over and over and over again. God owes grace or mercy to no one. If God is required to distribute his grace to someone, to extend his mercy to anyone, it is no longer by very definition grace nor mercy. Those things are not obligated. Justice is. But yet the goodness of grace is so often on display. And so often we take it for granted. Sproul says, we often blame God for the injustices done to us and harbor in our souls the bitter feeling that God has not been fair toward us. Even if we recognize that he is gracious, we think that he has not been gracious enough. We think we deserve more grace. Mm. We think we deserve grace more grace. We think that God has not been fair toward us. I've told you before, the last thing you want with God is fairness. The last thing you want with God is altness. Should we all have fairness with God, every one of us would lift our eyes at this moment in eternal hell separated from God forevermore. 
We fail to understand the holy justice of God because we don't see the goodness of his grace that so often surrounds us. And then finally, number three tonight, as we think about holy justice, we must think about the seriousness of sin, the goodness of grace, and then the heinousness of the cross. Holy justice takes us to Calvary. It's there at the cross where righteousness and mercy have kissed. What we discover at the cross is that Christ was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. Think about that for a moment. Christ was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. But punished he was. The wrath of God poured out upon him. Why? Because he willfully took our sins upon himself. Sproul says the cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in history. God would have been more than unjust. He would have been diabolical to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken on himself the sins of the world. Once Christ had done that, Once he volunteered to be the Lamb of God laden with our sin, then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly repugnant to the Father. God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. God made Christ a curse for the sin he bore. Herein was God's holy justice perfectly manifest. Yet it was done for us. He took what justice demanded from us. It is too astonishing to fathom. And how true that is. Tonight as we think about the holy justice of God, as we see his holy justice on display in these stories we've looked at tonight and throughout other places in Scripture, let us not forget its most glorious display that there at the cross, there is Christ hung with our sins placed upon him. The holy justice of God was poured out and his eternal demands sufficiently satisfied. God has done none of us an injustice and God will never do us an injustice. In spite of the seriousness of our sin, we get to delight in the goodness of his grace. A grace for his children that goes beyond just a benevolent, benefactory expression. But a grace and goodness that forever covers our sins and ensures that one day we'll draw near to him in heaven. The holiness of God. Let's pray tonight.